Well, good morning. I'm so glad you're here today. My name is Josh. I'm one of Bridgewater's pastors, and you've chosen a great weekend to be here because we are talking in a series right now about something that I think everyone at some point in their life wonders about or wrestles with, the end of the world, and uh, how's it all going to happen, and when, when, is it, when is it coming, and what's it going to be like, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So with all that's happening on a global sco- scale these days, it's got a lot of people asking the question, are these days the last days. And so that's what we're going to chase down. And hopefully you got a handout when you came in that may help you interact a little bit better with some of the material we're going to be working with today. But knowing that the end of something is coming brings out a response in all of us. And for some of us, it brings out the best. And for others, it brings out the worst. Let me uh, give you a few examples to help you know what I'm talking about. Um, maybe you remember being in high school and the disease that you caught with all of your classmates your senior year. Do you know what it's called? Yeah, senioritis, right? You're just done. I have a child who was done by the time they were a sophomore, and just, it was like a grind just to get through the rest of the, uh, the time there. So there's that, or maybe it's uh, coming to the end of a workday, you got an hour left on the clock, and maybe your approach is, let me just I don't know, twiddle my thumbs, use the bathroom, find things to do just so I can pass the time, punch the clock, and get out of there, while others of you just scrap and claw and fill that time and get as much done as you can because you, you know tomorrow you've got more work waiting for you, so you might as well just send it. Maybe uh, if you're in the exercise world, maybe you, if you've got a few minutes left on the countdown timer of your workout, maybe you just kind of coast through and don't really use your form, don't, don't max out your reps or anything like that. You're just kind of like, eh, it's almost done, I think I've had enough. While others of you really just push it to the end and get as much out of it as you possibly can. Or maybe it's the time you were a kid and maybe mom or dad gave you a to-do list to get done by the time they got home from where they were going. I think some of us probably just got that list done and then peacefully enjoyed the rest of our day. I think others of us peacefully enjoyed our day (laughs) and then freaked out when we knew mom and dad were pulling in and uh, tried to scramble to get everything done. But think about how you have handled situations like that in your life. I would tell you for me, I've gone through significant change in how I've handled things like that. The most notable to me began in my basketball career, my, my very noteworthy basketball career. Um, I, I grew up um, playing basketball in Indiana, and by the time I was in seventh grade, I was ready to join our school's junior high team. And for about seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I had one particular approach to practice because we were very heavy on conditioning. Our coaching philosophy was we're going to be nothing if not in shape. And so every practice was just brutally agonizing to get through all of the workout conditioning stuff that we had to do. So my immediate approach was I want to have gas in the tank for the end of practice to really look good uh, at the end of these sprints. And uh, honestly, I had things to do after practice too, and I didn't want to be totally dog tired to to do those. So I was all about conserving energy and uh, minimal effort to get by. And of course, the obvious payout of that was I was not a key contributor at all to our team, didn't get much playing time and didn't really have the respect to the rest of my teammates. But hey, that was my approach. About my sophomore year, things changed for a number of reasons. And uh, I kind of abandoned that strategy and gave myself, I just decided everything I do, I'm going to do 100%. And if I don't have any gas in the tank, then everyone, including the coaches, will know that I have been giving it my all the whole time. And so it really was brutal for the first part of the season. I would find myself later in drills hardly having the energy to do it, and we always finished with wind sprints. I could hardly move my legs to get those things going. 
So it was, it was not good for a time. But something amazing began to happen, and it's called getting in shape. Uh, my endurance grew, my strength grew, and I found that not only was I not tapped out, I had energy reserves. And so game time came, and there could have been good reasons to pull me out of the game and sit me on the bench, but none of them were because I wasn't hustling, was out of shape, or wasn't working hard. Um, so I decided I was just going to give it my all. I knew eventually that practice time was limited. You could do anything for a couple of hours. So I was just going to give it my all and see what happened. And an amazing thing began to happen, and that was I became a key contribu contributor on our team and found that I had way more within me uh, than I thought I did. And so it was pretty, pretty amazing. And in this series on end times, we're talking about knowing that something is coming. The end is coming. And what I would like us to do is fixate not on a particular world event or a timeline, but on what does the fact that the end is coming produce in us. Is it bringing out the best? Are we biding our time or are we investing our time? Are we just trying to get by or are we getting as much done as we possibly can knowing the cutoff is going to come? We're thinking about this because honestly, with all the world events particularly happening in Israel, uh, we're wondering what is going on because if you're a student of the Bible or have been around church for any length of time, you understand that Israel does play a key part in God's plan for dealing with the world. So we're in this place wondering if the end is near. Are we almost done? And we're going to chase that question down. We're not the first people to ask this question. People have been asking this question for a very, very long time. Early followers of Jesus were asking this question. It's kind of the question. Now, the 12 disciples, the closest followers of Jesus during his time on earth, were asking this question. Here it is, and we find it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? It's quite a question, and we're going to interact with that today. But again, I want to urge you not to get fixated on ideas about future events and timelines and charts and all that kind of stuff. I really, we, we really need to get the thrust that Jesus was getting after and is what are we doing with our time now? Between now and when Jesus returns, what are we doing? We're going to press in a little bit to what that means. Before we get into how Jesus answers this question, I want to give you a timeline, a biblical overview of the timing of things from history into the future. And I'll describe each part of this timeline or chart really um, very, very briefly. You have here about 2000 BC, God begins to deal with the world in a very unique way through a man named Abraham. And all of the descendants of Abraham became known as Israelites. And so God's predominant way of dealing with the world was through the nation of Israel. Up next, you have the cross. This shouldn't surprise you. This is Jesus' death and resurrection for the sins of the world. And then the church here, we have the church age. This is all followers of Jesus from after his ascension around Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, until now is known as the church. 
And we believe in 1 Thessalonians 4, there comes a moment when Jesus collects his church in what we will refer to as the rapture. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will meet the Lord uh, together in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. We believe that then ushers in a seven-year time of great suffering known as the tribulation or the great tribulation. After this time period, Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives to set up his 1,000-year reign on the earth, and it will be amazing. Um, People will still carry on like we are, having babies, and there will be some who do not turn to God for salvation, but turn against him at the end of the 1,000 years. Satan, who's been bound up, will be freed, and he will gather all of the nations, and then the last battle, God wins, and all followers of Jesus are together with him in a new heaven and new earth. Think we're done? Let's go home. (laughs) Uh, Here's the problem with that nice, neat, tidy chart. This is one attempt to summarize thousands of verses in the Bible. When the Bible talks about, writers of Scripture talk about things pertaining to the end, it's not perfectly clear. It's a little bit fuzzy. But I want to tell you that most of the Bible and the teachings of Scripture are clear. When Scripture says that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you know what happened? He raised Lazarus from the dead. When we're commanded, do not steal, it might shock you to know that that means don't steal. Right? But when it comes to prophecy and things related to the not yet, it can be a little less clear. So some people believe that Jesus will return after the millennium and that we're actually in the millennium now. Some people believe that we've been in the tribulation for thousands of years. But this chart summarizes what most, not all, uh, people in Bridgewater Church believe, including me personally. It's my best guess at what's going to happen. And if you nail me to the wall and say, are you sure? I'm going to say, no, no, I'm not totally sure. It might also interest you if you lean into this kind of stuff to know that most people who take the Bible seriously, who lean into the teachings of Scripture, agree about most of this. In fact, they would largely agree that all of this happens. They would just quabble about the order and how things pan out and and where they take place. But the point is that Jesus is coming back and he will make all things new and all things right. So saying that, if you disagree with this sermon, it doesn't necessarily make you a heretic. We're not going to ask you to leave. Uh, There is room for you here. We want to have grace where it's less clear. What we want to do, though, is look at what Scripture teaches, not what we sort of always thought it taught, or what we've been told we must believe, we want to go back, look at Scripture, and see what it says, and then figure out what we're supposed to do. Okay? All right. So now back to the question, what will signal Jesus' return and the end of the world? That's the question we're going to ask here. What is the final countdown before Jesus returns? So Jesus here in Matthew 24, verse 3 with his disciples, had just told them in the previous verses that their temple was coming down, that it was going to be destroyed. This Jewish temple, often called the eighth wonder of the ancient world, would be destroyed. A masterpiece of engineering and beauty. This is the temple here. This is the temple mount. And it looks like, I took this picture, and it looks like I maybe was flying a drone or in a plane. Not true. This is a model 
I spent some time in Israel in 2018, and uh, this is a model of the city, the way it looked and how the temple may have looked, but our guide was sure to tell us that the temple was way more opulent than this, would have been uh, covered with gold, and so it would shine in the sun. And so when um, Jews would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem once a year, they would see it glisten in the sun, and they would know which way to go. It would be this, this beacon of hope and light a signal of God's presence in the world. Jesus said, it's coming down. It's going to be destroyed. Um, and so that would, have, uh, that would have been really, really rough to hear for the disciples. It's almost unbelievable, but that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Roman general Titus reconquered Jerusalem, killed 1.1 million Jews, and tore down the temple stone by stone. Not one stone was left on the other. Then he went back to Rome, Italy, where he was reigning, and uh, set up this Arch of Triumph to commemorate the destruction of Israel. Still stands there today. One of the confusing things to sort out here is that we've got a very different perspective than Jesus' closest followers. They had a particular understanding, and we're kind of like looking through glass at what happened and how they were thinking about things. And so part of what they would wrestle with is they thought that when the temple was destroyed, Jesus returns to earth and sets up his rule immediately. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Because actually within 40 years of Jesus having this conversation with them, the temple was destroyed, but that wasn't a sign. Jesus is saying, that's not a sign of my return. So Jesus spends a little bit of time here in the next few verses explaining to his followers what's not a sign of his soon return. So let's track along in verses 4 through 8. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. So wars, famines, earthquakes, all of that, that's a part of living in the world. And Jesus said, it's not necessarily a sign of my imminent return. So don't let anyone mislead you. Thankfully, for his followers' sake and for our sake, Jesus then goes on in the next few verses to explain six things that are to take place right before his return. These things are going to happen before his return. And so since this is the final countdown series, we're going to take these events that Jesus lists one by one, starting with six, going all the way down to number one. So let's get started. Number six. Jesus' followers will be hated all over the world. All right, followers of Jesus, worldwide hate. This comes from verse 9. He said, then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. Now let's think about it here for a minute. Worldwide hatred of Christians has only really happened in recent history. Christians hated in like the 1700s or earlier. Not really possible because most of the world, much of the world, was not even aware of Christians. But did you know nowadays, for 20% of the world's population listening to this sermon right now is against the law. It's illegal for 20% of the world's population. The organization Open Doors says that 
in the last 30 years since they've been tracking uh, Christian persecution, it is the worst now that it has ever been. It's hard to find a place in the world where there's not hate for Christians. So what do we call this one? Fulfilled. We'll call this one fulfilled. It's already happened. Counting down, number five. Lots of deconversions. Lots of deconversions. Deconversion, that's a way of saying there were people who seemed to be following after Jesus. Part of us in the faith and no, about face, they're done. Verse 10, many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Jesus is saying we should expect a lot of deconversion stories taking place. People turning away from the faith, no longer following Jesus, the closer and closer we get to his return. We should see an increase of hatred in people, one toward another. What do you think? Fulfilled. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, this is a hard one to talk about because for some of us, these people are in our own families. So again, it's easy to sort of back up and look at a timeline and, and just evaluate it and forget that this hits very close to home. This is close to home for all of us. Number four, many false prophets will deceive many. A lot of false prophets will deceive many. Verse 11, many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Did you know that there are 1.9 billion people in the world following the false prophet Muhammad? You know, there's another 16 million people following the teachings of Joseph Smith. Now, I'm not here to say that Muslims are bad people, that Mormons are bad people. What I'm saying is you've got a couple of false prophets deceiving a lot of people all over the world. And there are more than that. There's even tiny little groups and smaller cults. There's like the uh, Iglesia Ni Cristo following the teachings of the false prophet Felix Manalo. That's three million people. So what do we say here? Check. Fulfilled. Number three, wickedness will increase and love will grow cold. Verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I don't think it's, a, it's a, uh, an exaggeration or a stretch for me to say that sin has increased or is increasing. It's everywhere. The pro proliferation of sin and sinful materials is, is just crazy, and it's everywhere, and there's no escape. There's no place to go. And even if you hide yourself away to escape all the sin of the world, you're still going to have sin because you brought your own. We're not immune. And one of the defining factors in the church in America and the Western world is that there's an increase in wickedness within the church, and our love has grown cold. Love for the needs of the world around us, love for each other, love for the things of God, and we're not the only part of the world where this is true. But is it true of you? Has your love for God grown cold? Well, we'll call that one fulfilled. Number two, the gospel will be preached throughout the whole world. This is an interesting one. Verse 14, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. Okay, now, as I said, this is interesting because it really depends on how you define nations. If nations are defined as a political government, then this is already fulfilled. It's already happened. But if you define nations as a distinct group of people, 
And then it's pretty close. It's very close, I would argue. Possibly fulfilled in the next couple of years. I mean, over 60 years ago, Canadian pastor Oswald J. Smith said this, we talk about the second coming, but half the world has never heard of the first. We talk about Jesus' return, but half the people have never even heard about Christmas, about Jesus coming as a baby. But since then, many people have heard or now have access to the gospel, and part of that is due to you. We as a church support the gospel spread around the whole world. Some of you have gone to other places in the world to spread the message of the gospel. But did you know that there are uh, 600 ethnic groups that consist of 5,000 or more people? We're talking a total of 26 million people where there are no known believers, no churches, no missionaries, no known gospel witness in the world. 26 million people. Now that sounds like a lot of people, but it actually only represents 4% of the world's population who has not heard the message of the gospel. And in 1990, it was estimated that there are 4,200 languages yet to have the Bible translated into them. However, in March of 2021, Wycliffe Last Languages Campaign said that there were only 2,000 languages left for the Bible to be translated into. So, we got six, we got five, four, three, two, and one. So here we are, the last minute before midnight. That's a lot of words, and ones we don't normally use. Let's go to the scripture, and then we'll explain. Verse 15, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the, the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration, standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Now again, if you're a student of the Bible or you've been around church, you would have heard about this as the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. It's the same thing, and it's really an obscure quotation to nearly everyone here. But to any Jew alive in Jesus' day, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Because the Daniel 11 prophecy, Daniel, a prophet in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, made a prophecy about this. And it was the rise of the Persian Empire, and after that, the fractured Greek Empire, and the last ruler of the fractured Greek Empire named Antiochus Epiphanes, all coming out of what Alexander the Great really started. In 168 BC, about 200 years before this conversation Jesus is having with his followers, this is what took place. Antiochus took a pig, went into the temple, into the most holy place in the temple, slaughtered the pig as a sacrifice to Zeus. Then he killed more than 80,000 Jewish men, women, and children and sold 40,000 more into slavery. The practice of Judaism outlawed. Every Old Testament scroll or resource burned. If a baby boy was found circumcised, he and his mother were thrown off the walls to their death, the wall surrounding Jerusalem. This was what he was talking about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. This is what they would have thought about. And so if you would ask Jesus, uh, any, any Jew alive in the time of Jesus, what's the most horrific, tragic event that has happened in the last 500 years? They would have pointed to that 200 years ago. But here, what's happening here is what's pretty common in Bible prophecy. It's called a double fulfillment. A double fulfillment means that there's a distant prophecy that, I, that I'm predicting, but then there's a nearer-term prophecy upon which this one hangs. Meaning, if this one that I'll be around for 
comes true, then you can be sure that the one I predicted long into the future is going to be true. So anyone can say in 2,000 years, a meteorite is going to hit New York City and destroy everything. You can say that and just walk away, never have to deal with it. But if I said that, and then I said, and in a few years, Lake Erie is going to dry up, you might ignore me about New York City unless Lake Erie dries up. Okay, so that's what's happening. They would often give another a part of that prophecy to, um, to confirm the truth of the distant prophecy. And this is also true of Daniel's prophecy because later in Matthew chapter 24, the chapter where we are, verse 21, Jesus says there will be greater anguish. The word is tribulation. There will be great tribula- tribulation than, than, than at any time since the world began. It will never be so great again. So as bad as things were under Antiochus Epiphanes, Jesus says it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. Now, some would argue that the sacrilegious object that causes desecration was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when Roman Emperor Titus came in and conquered it, destroyed everything. But no one, no historian or person in that area would say, oh, that was way, yeah, that's way worse than what happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. Something worse is coming, and that's Jesus' point. Jesus is referring to a time still yet to come in the future. Now, some of you are a little upset because you didn't get to write down all that. So here it is. Here's a summary of the events that Jesus outlined in Matthew 24. We worked through this one. Fulfilled, 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 yet to come. So personally, I do not believe that we are waiting on anything else for Jesus to come rapture his church. That could happen at any moment. However, before the end of the tribulation and the return of Jesus, this is one of the things that needs to happen. I got questioned after first service between Jesus' return and rapture. Scholars and theologians like to say that uh, the rapture is not Jesus' return because he doesn't really come all the way down. First Thessalonians 4 says we meet the Lord together in the air. At the end of the tribulation, he comes down to reign. That's the distinction. You could talk to me afterwards if you're wondering about that. I want to get back to, um, real quick, talking about basketball practice because that has so much to do with the end times. But as I told you, we're talking about what is this period of time, knowing that the end is coming, bringing about in us. Because honestly, I want to talk to church folks here for a second. If this is just bringing about interest in you and intrigue and mystery, you missed it. You missed it. That's fine if it leads you to action and living how you need to live, knowing that the end is coming. It's one thing to bide your time and get by. It's another thing to invest your time and make yourself useful. And that's what we're getting after. Jesus, Jesus returned and he gave his followers a mission. He didn't give them a mystery. There are things we just can't know, but what we can know is what we need to do right now. And like I learned to do in basketball, I personally became more able and then corporately became more useful. And that is my desire for all of us here. So what would it look like for followers of Jesus right now today to be useful, to make the most of our time, to make sure that we are working as long as we are clocked in. 
Let's ask that question. So Jesus can return for the church at any time. So how should we live? I want to give you three suggestions for application here um, that I hope will help this land for you. First, not afraid. Not afraid. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, you have nothing to fear. For a lot of people who hang around the church, anytime we talk about the end of the world or end times, it elicits all of this fear and anxiety and worry. No, 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 no. No. Jesus will reign victorious. We will reign with him. There is nothing to fear. If you're not a follower of Jesus, fear would be appropriate. And you need to see the time before he returns as his grace and mercy towards you, giving you an opportunity to place your faith in him, to trust in him, and find forgiveness for your sins and true meaning in your life. Secondly, not a prepper. Not a prepper. This might poke some of you right in the eyes. But our response to the tribulation coming is not to go to the store and stock up on non-perishable food, ammunition, and weapons. It should be to tell as many people about Jesus as possible. Because what's happening is from God and it's all for God and having enough beans in the cellar will mean nothing. Jesus may come and find you really prepared to survive and not having done anything you, he asked you to do in the meantime. We don't want to get through the tribulation with enough food and ammo. We want to take as many people out of the tribulation as possible because there's something worse than the tribulation coming and it's the final judgment of God outlined in Revelation 20. That's what we want to help people avoid. Third, personally right with God. Personally right with God. This is how you can live. You ever been caught doing something wrong? You ever been caught in the act red-handed? feels terrible. The greater the offense, the greater the shame, the greater the guilt. Now take the most extreme of that, multiply it times a million, and that's us living for ourselves, living in sin, doing whatever we want while waiting for Jesus to return. For some of us, it's not just sin, it's just wasting time. I mean, even in our kids' ministry today, they're talking about the man who had a barn and had a lot of possessions and he was stockpiling and he had so many possessions, he tore down that barn and built a bigger barn and stocked that full. Imagine Jesus returning and saying, what are, what are you doing? That is not the way to be ready. We can't stock up on being personally right with God because being personally right with God is a daily moment-by-moment -moment decision to value and prioritize the things of God and to spread the good news of the kingdom of God with everyone that you know. He is coming back, and so we need to remember Jesus will return for everyone someday, but he returns for someone every day. Think about it. Even if you don't believe Jesus is going to return today or tomorrow, he could return for you in five minutes. People die all of the time. Death is a part of the human experience. And when you die, your destiny, your reward, your punishment, all becomes fixed. That's it. Is what it is at that point in time. Are you right with God now? We need to remember the words of the writer of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. He said, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
wondering what happens after death. Judgment happens for better or for worse. Now, next week we're going to talk about the very best thing we can do in between now and when Jesus returns, and that is to tell as many people as we know about Jesus. And you're thinking, I already know that. No, no, we're going to get into specifically how you can do that. You do not want to miss. This is an opportunity to do what you're supposed to be doing better. Because there is something way worse than tribulation, and it is, as I said, the final judgment of Jesus. Are you and the people that you know, that you love, ready for the return of Jesus? As we think about that, I want us to just think on the words of one of the followers of Jesus named John, who wrote this in 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ, so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. What can you do to be a person who is eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus? You were handed a note sheet when you came in. On the back of it, you've got a circle, you've got a circle with a slash. In the circle, here's what I'm asking you to do. What is one thing you need to begin doing or add to your life to be ready for the return of Jesus? Flip side, what is one thing you need to eliminate right now from your life so that you can be prepared for the return of Jesus? Good news is, the Lord is compassionate. He's full of mercy and steadfast love. In fact, he's not willing that anyone should die and pay the price for their sins, but desires that all come to repentance and receive eternal life. The time you have right now is time that God is graciously giving you to be right before him. You've got to decide whether or not you want to accept that gift from him. Would you pray with me? God, we believe that your word is true and that Jesus is coming back. And rather than get lost in details and mystery and uncertainties, I pray that we would be quick to do what we ought to do, the most important thing we can do while we wait for your return, that we would be right with you and we would help as many people as we possibly can be right with you. So help us not to waste our time giving in to our own desires or just being really poor managers of time. I pray that we'd be active and find great joy in doing what you've given us to do. I pray that we and the people that we know would be overjoyed when Jesus returns. Thank you for your patience and waiting. Thank you for Jesus who made it possible to be right with you in the first place. It's in his name we pray. Amen.